Well, amen. What a blessing. It's good to be with you this morning. I hope that uh, this time together finds you very content and resting in the security the Lord offers to you. And and I pray that it finds you with ever-expanding prayer life as you take in the rest of the world along with your immediate opportunities for, for witnessing. I hope you are expanding out as you see the news that it doesn't disturb you in any way. For the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So that your prayer life expands, your time in the Word is expanding, that we might come away from this time where we're kind of sequestered, bolder in sharing our faith. I talked to two different people yesterday, of course, socially distant, of course, who uh, told me that they had had opportunities to share uh, the, the good news of the gospel with the neighbor. And that just thrilled me. I just pray that that's what, what, where you're finding yourself, that the Lord has placed that burden on you and that you have begun to do that. So may this time together find you uh, abounding. It's, uh, it's good to be back in the Word again today, God's plan for a healthy church, a continued study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Material possessions is where we've landed. Last week was really our introduction. We'll do a little bit more introduction today. But really answering the question today, our focus as we get in a little bit will be, is money moral? I think a valid question considering the things that we hear yelled today and printed. So we'll take a look at that as we look at God's plan for material possessions. So you may have heard this, but according to a new study, nearly one-third of U.S. lottery winners declare bankruptcy, often just a few years after their big win. Last October, the record-breaking 1.5 billion Mega Millions jackpot captivated at least some of our nation. I'm not sure I knew anything about it. Maybe you didn't either and you missed it, but apparently millions of people held their breath as the winning numbers were revealed. In South Carolina, the ultimate dream was realized. Uh, This South Carolinian was in town visiting Greenville and decided to go on a scenic drive through some of the Uh, her downtime, as fate would have it. Her drive back took her past the KC Mart, where the sign showed the incredibly large jackpot that was available, and that caught her eye. And she decided to take a chance and purchase a ticket, never once thinking she had the slightest chance to win. After checking her ticket the morning after the drawing, she was in complete shock and disbelief. She stared motionless at the ticket for what seemed like hours, and then came the jumps and the screams for joy. Now, that we know how that went down, um, and certainly wishing her goodwill, according to bank rate data, there's, here's a brief look at some of those who uh, wound up worse off than they were before hitting it big. Alex and Rhoda Toth won $13 million. The couple accepted payments of 666666 I don't know that I would have allowed that number to stand, but anyway... Over 20, a 20 year span, that's what they accepted each year, but filed for bankruptcy in 2006 after living lavish lifestyles in Vegas and enduring a glut of legal expenses resulting from family drama. The couple was later charged with tax evasion and Rhoda was sentenced to two years in prison and fined 1.1 million. Uh, Billy Bob Harold Jr. won 31 million. He was coined as Santa Claus. Harold paid bills and bought new cars and homes for his family before purchasing roughly 500 turkeys for the poor. Less than two years after winning the lotto, Harold took his own life, according to Bankrate. Uh, Janet Lee, an entrepreneur from St. Louis, won $18 million. 
Lee donated wads of money to the Democratic National Committee as well as individual political candidates. She also donated to Washington University and its law school. According to Bankrate, though, in 2001, after extensive spending, Lee filed for bankruptcy with only $700 left to her name. She had reportedly lost $350,000 in gambling. The one, though, that I find the most humorous, you may know of this story, was the story of William Post III. William won $16.2 million, and about eight years after a winning, he auctioned off the remaining $4.9 million of his winnings to settle over $500,000 in outstanding debt and, quote, kiss his bad luck goodbye. William reportedly told bankruptcy lawyer Judge Judith Fitzgerald, quote, I want to get rid of the lottery. Believe me, Your Honor, it really has been a pain. Post hit it big. Since Post hit it big, his brother had been convicted of trying to kill him so he could gain access to the money. His wife moved out. His former landlady won a lawsuit against him for one-third of his winnings. He lost two small businesses he owned, and the gas was turned off at his house. To cover his debts, the court agreed to auction off the remaining $4.9 million worth of payments he was to receive over the next 17 years. The company Prosperity Partners bought the 17-year payout for $2.65 million, and Post reportedly left the courtroom saying, quote, I'm happier today than the day I won the lottery, end quote. I think Post may have discovered, and many of them may have discovered, the truth of Paul's words in Timothy that we looked at last week, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And the longing for it is interesting. It plays out in a lot of different ways, not just the lottery uh, or after the lottery is won. And there's a problem with how I think we think about uh, money and finances and, and prosperity and all of that, and it's, it's certainly in the church. According to 2019 statistics from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, it plays out in credit card use. Uh, according to 2019 statistics, uh, the average U.S. household owes $16,748 in credit card debt. Total U.S. credit card debt, $779 billion last year. And this statistic is really directly tied to this one from the website Debt Roundup. Uh, the average American is spending right now $1.33 for every dollar earned. And this is consumer debt, the majority of it. Now, this is debt linked to entertainment and dining out and vacations and other forms of spending which have no corresponding asset. And of course, the culture contributes to that problem by drawing us in and making things seem so attractive and impossible to do without and we really need it and however else we justify it. And, and there are a lot of other things that contribute to the mishandling of money and finances. But when we think about the Macedonian believers that we started with last week and how Paul was really carried along to present them as the New Testament model of giving, we saw really four things that were key as we understood their character. Number one, uh, how they did what they were able to do. In other words, it was proportionate to whatever income or, or resources they had. Number two, uh, they gave even more than they were able, so it was sacrificial. Number three, they chose to do it, so it was willing and it was faithful. And then it ended up bringing great joy and we'll see tremendous blessing in using a portion of what they had to invest in eternal things. 
And so when we think about that kind of model and then we think about what we just read, we really don't see that too often in the church anymore. And, and I've already talked about one, credit card debt is one of the reasons. That certainly contributes. Uh, purchasing, in other words, things that you don't have the money to buy so you can uh, have more, uh, you have to put more and more money toward debt retirement. And, and that has a direct correlation according to a 2018 study. According to the 2018 study from Pushpay, eight out of 10 people who give to ministry regularly have zero credit card debt. So if you think about that, then that puts a, that's a very small, uh, very small group of people, isn't it? And when you look at the things that consistent givers have in common, uh, this is one of the most obvious. There are a lot of people who want to give, uh, but feel like they're in a financial position that precludes it, which is a direct result of not resisting a culture that is continually pushing us uh, to purchase what we cannot afford. And that model is made uh, more difficult to emulate in modern Christianity when we are inundated with requests. So there's no end of requests for finances. There's no end of what appears to be a uh, reasonable need. Certainly parachurch ministries ring there and crowdfunding. And, and some of those are building personal kingdoms, no question about it, and, and funding lavish lifestyles. And, and the most important part is there's no accountability to either of those things. And so uh, there's always this constant demand for what we have, what resources are there. Or we're told to embrace the Old Testament form of tithing, and, and we'll look at this more later, uh, but we're not doing that either. In fact, tithers only make up 20% of any congregation, according to Push Bay. And, and there have been a number of studies out that show that if you, if you took every adult American evangelical in churches and you reduced the income to the poverty level, and then everyone gave 10% from the poverty level of every evangelical Christian in churches, if everyone was there and gave 10%, ministry giving would actually have a 300% increase. So we're not doing that either. And another reason we don't see this Macedonian model too often is this whole idea of retirement that we need to have this large amount of resource stashed away as early as possible so we can count on doing as little as possible for as long as possible. That really kind of sums up the axiom of retirement savings. And somehow that's become the goal of life. Uh, the goal of life is to get into a position so that we won't have to do anything we don't want to do for as long as possible. And, and it's not that we aren't self-absorbed enough now because we can see uh, the other ways that we are absorbed in our own lifestyle with credit card giving and spending a dollar thirty-three out of every dollar we earn. But also now, after even all of that, we, we want to sock away what's left of the resources God has lent to us to make sure we can be completely self-absorbed in our later years. Now, don't get me wrong. Scripture encourages us to plan for the future, and we're going to look at that later, but it also tells us that we're made to work. In fact, Paul gives this admonition to the church in Thessalonica in his letter uh, entitled 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 11, he says, and make your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. 144 times, just in the New Testament, the word work is used to refer to the disposition of men and women. And it's not just a suggestion. It is supposed to be the pattern of our lives as the Lord gives us health, and there's always something to do. And, and if you're able to cease working, and this is just kind of a side note because we'll get to this more in, later, but if you're able to cease working for the world and you don't need it to, to make a living, then you should be considering spending the rest of your life working for the kingdom at least as hard as you worked for the world. And, and we, we want to make sure that we're not stockpiling more and more of what we should perhaps be investing in eternity. And, and perhaps with, with all of that, we've experienced 
over the last month and everything that's happened to the stock market and all the things that we've seen, maybe the Lord is perhaps, at least for his church, realigning our priorities by taking away some of what we have stockpiled that shouldn't have been put there to begin with. Now, these are some of the factors that are influencing how we are handling the material uh, possessions that the Lord has loaned us. And the next few things I'll give you from PushPay as well, which is a uh, church mobile giving uh, platform, but it has done a lot of study on giving and, and really has some very recent statistics. But obviously, these factors are influencing and affecting the church. All the things I just got through saying, the things that are on the screen there, credit card debt, in, uh, inundated by requests, Old Testament tithing, retirement. And those requests, of course, we're not, we're not filtering through and making sure there's some accountability there and this is not enriching a lifestyle or, or building some kingdom. So it's affecting the church, and, and we know that because ministry giving is down about 50% since 1990, according to Pushback. And, and, and we make more than our parents made, but we give less. And just a few hard facts. On average, Christians give 2.5% of their income to ministry and to, to kingdom work. About 2.5% on average. During the Great Depression, they gave 3.3%. Individuals spend, on average, four times more on credit card interest than they give. And here's the deal. 50% of those who go to church give nothing at all. Out of every dollar given for ministry, 78 cents comes from those 55 or older. And just to make this statistic more relevant, if you look at the source now and not the amount, so realize that there are different categories and and uh, in different levels of your life, probably different income. So I'm not talking about the amount. I'm just talking about the source. So Generation X, 1965 to 1980, they make up 19% of all donors and account for 26.6% of the population. Generation Y, 1981 to 1997, make up 7.1% of donors and 30.4% of the population. Uh, millennials... Uh, ages 24 to 39 are 11% of donors and 20% of the population. Now, the greatest generation, that's 1900 to 1927, born. The silent generation, 1928 to 1945, and boomers make up 78.8% of total church giving, but only represent 18% of the population. So all these generations now, you think about these older generations, they're going to go on into eternity. And the question is, what happens to giving like we see modeled in the New Testament? And how will ministry continue? And so I want to have you, ask you a question. I want you to think about this and, uh, and be honest with your answer to yourself as you b begin this study. You may not have the answer to it uh, until we get to the end, but perhaps you are getting an inkling of maybe what the answer would be. Here it is. Now, now, given what you know so far about New Testament giving, which we've just really touched the surface of it, we're going to see a lot of other things that have to do with, it doesn't have to do with what uh, the amount that you're giving has to do with what your, where your heart is, and we're going to see this over and over again. But the fact of the matter is, the, is this. It's a question I want you to ask yourself. If, if everyone in the church gave like you do, and I'm not talking about differences in salaries and incomes, okay? What I'm talking about is just what we know about New Testament giving. So if everyone gave in proportion uh, at the level that you do, so in other words, the resources you have in proportion to that, and if everyone gave... At the level of sacrifice, so more than you could reasonably afford, like you do. And if everyone gave at the level of faithfulness, so you're willing and you do it on a regular basis, like you do, would ministry be able to continue? Be honest. And 
I'd like you to answer that question honestly, and, and, and maybe you know the answer right now. And, and if you realize, perhaps, you know the answer, then maybe for the first time in your life you realize you need to fix that. And if you know that, then you should begin fixing it. But more likely, if, you're, if your answer is, no, the ministry would not be able to continue, if people gave it the way that I do, in, in proportion and in sacrifice and in level of faithfulness, no, it wouldn't continue. You may not know how to fix it. That's more likely. Or you may have encumbered yourself so much that it doesn't look like it's even possible to fix it. And if that or, or whatever is the case, be encouraged because those answers would be part of our study because if the Lord has directed us to do it and he's given the New Testament model for it and that doesn't resemble anything like how we're managing it, then he's going to also give us a way to order our lives so that we can manage it that way if we are determined to do the hard things and ask the right questions. So after those quick facts, I'd like to spend some more time kind of building on the foundation for applying the type of biblical view of material possessions that can get us to the right perspective on what we have, because that's what it is. We have to get to the right perspective on what we have. We looked at at uh, and some of the sources, that who owns everything last time. We'll get more into that as we go along. But not only just have the right perspective on what we have, but how to handle that. And and the first question we want to look at from that perspective is this, is having money okay? Is is it moral? If you have a lot, is that okay? And, and I read an interview of Bernie Sanders, and he's just a likely target, so he'll just bring him up. But an interview of Bernie Sanders not that long ago, before he, he uh, pulled himself out of the race, it looks like he may be back in it, but where he told the New York Times that billionaires should not exist. He's, actually, this is a direct quote from New York Times. I don't think that billionaires should exist, he said in the interview, and quote, I hope the day comes when they don't. So he's just being honest about that. And, and Sanders made the statements back when he was kind of rolling out his latest proposal in the presidential race for a wealth tax, a, a policy that had been a key component of White House rival Senator Elizabeth Warren's campaign. And the wealth tax, which is a proposed tax on accumulated wealth, was really proposed because of the slant towards those who are wealthy, as that is immoral. Nobody should have that much money. And, and so this proposed tax is on accumulated wealth, so not income. Uh, it would slash wealth of typical billionaire about half according to the economists who helped design the plan and spoke to the New York Times. Sander told the paper he would use the money from the tax to fund his signature campaign's proposal of Medicare for All and government-run daycare and a new housing plan unveiled last, just a week before that article ran. And, and he and many in his camp, like AOC, have, have begun using the word immoral to refer to the wealth some individuals have amassed. Of course, uh, all the while amassing their own wealth. And, of course, these types of comments, while not only hypocritical, are misleading in how they are couched, really drawing the public's attention to the extreme poverty coexisting in a nation with extreme wealth. And so this disproportionate uh, disbursement of wealth is what they look at with just a few people. But what really what we have going on here, just a continuation of what we see in Mark chapter 14, verse, verse 3. So Jesus is in Bethany, he's at the home of Simon the leper, and, and he's reclining at the table, and there came a woman, and you remember this perhaps, but I think that you'll see how, how closely this, uh, this parallels what we just got through reading. There came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it on his head. Now we see in other gospels that it was worth about a year's wage. So uh, what a work, typical working man would make in a year, this little vial that was worth that. So it was very valuable. And, and some, it says in verse 4, were indignantly remarking to one another, 
Why has this perfume been wasted? Um, how was it wasted? Well, for this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. So did Jesus castigate her because she had taken this very expensive bottle of perfume and used it really to anoint him? We see in other Gospels for his burial. No. Did he remark on how expensive it was? No. What did he remark on? He remarked on the hypocrisy of those who were chambering to have it sold and give uh, given to and the money given to the poor. John tells us that Judas was involved here too, and it says in par- kind of a parenthetical statement, he used to help himself to the money box. So as Judas is ringing in, of course he's thinking, well, if it was sold, it would have landed up in the money box, and then I could have helped myself to what was put in there. Were were these people really interested in poor people? No. And what did Jesus say about that argument? He said, "You can do good to the poor what any time you want." And the parallel, I think, is strikingly similar. Uh, do, I, do I think that those who criticize those who are wealthy and call them immoral, do I think they're interested in poor people? No, I do not. Uh, their habits and their patterns of life indicate a resounding no, actually, there. Uh, what we really have is just a continuation of covetousness. We have, you know, G, uh, God's top ten here in Exodus 20, verse 17. You know, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And covetous, beloved, always, covetousness always springs out of the same age-old problem of sin, which you see in 1 John 2, right? Uh, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Because Proverbs says what? Uh, people always continue down these paths because Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of men ever satisfied. Now, what's interesting is that back in November, when Bernie made those statements, on the same day, a new study came out from the Cato Institute, out on the same day as Sanders' statement showed that 75% of Americans reject the idea that it is immoral for society to allow people to become millionaires. 75% reject it, which overall is a relief, I think, for most of us. But it still leaves 25% of those surveyed sharing the same philosophy as Bernie Sanders and AOC and, and Elizabeth Warren. And that's disturbing to me. And it's a philosophy that's been around a long time. And those that espouse it seem to shout the loudest. They want to make up about 25% of the group, but they shout the loudest. Uh, but what the scripture tells us is this, in First Timothy chapter 6, uh, the love of money is the root of our sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The love of money is really the problem, right? The love of money is the problem, not money itself. Now, Taking a look at whether there's a morality to money can really be a positive use of time in that we have remaining. And I think you kind of see where we're going already with the scriptures as it lends itself to a neutral position of possessions and material things. But I want you to look at Mark chapter 7. That's where we'll be the majority of the time this morning, and then there'll be some other things there at the end I want you to look at. And as I told you earlier when we started this study, we're going to spend some time laying a foundation and build on that foundation of possessions and material things so that we can get to the point where it seems very, very reasonable, not just that, but we can embrace this idea of the model of New Testament giving exemplified for us in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and not walk away thinking there's no way I could get there. 
So there's some underlying understanding, and there was, a, I think, a learning curve for the church, and they're already there, and we need to be there too. So maybe you're already there, and if you are, this would be a great review, and you can praise the Lord for your understanding. If you're not there, I hope it's encouraging for you. But here in Mark 7, Jesus is answering some questions about holiness and purity, and he talks about questions about what they ate and eating with hands where they didn't go through the ritual washing, and he points uh, to, uh, out the way they set up the law of God, really concerning a lot of things, including the way they use their uh, their finances. So they had this fence around the law of God, if you will. It was a little bit further out, and, and this is the way they kind of set aside the law of God, and they just said, okay, this is how we're going to keep ourselves from sinning, and we're going to do these kinds of things. And Jesus has a lot of negative things to say about all of that, all through the Gospels, and, and he kind of sums up their approach to life in many of the areas of life. And he quotes Isaiah's words from Isaiah 29 about God's evaluation of his people during Isaiah's day. And Jesus says this in Mark 7, verse 6, he says this, and he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And so you have this idea of what is immoral, he's saying, and, and what's a wrong action and what causes a man to be considered unclean and sinful. And they all have to do with outside influences. See, that's what Jesus is saying. And, and so you have all these rules and, and that you've made up to help put a fence around you and keep you holy. But all it is is lip service. And you blame your problems on outside things. But they are not the problem. Jesus says your heart's the problem. And then Jesus makes a very clear statement concerning the things that are in the world. And we see it in Mark chapter 7, verse 15. He says this, But there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And, and the idea here is this. Uh, there's, there's nothing, you can see this, there's nothing in the world coming into the person, something that you're exposed to that in and of itself defiles you. Uh, speaking of anything that makes you unclean, whether by omission or commission. And then Jesus says this, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, you may want to pay attention to this and understand this. Jesus says, this is not what you're used to hearing because people are used to blaming outside things for their problems. And I think that we do that as well with the way we manage money. I think uh, with a credit card debt and, and, and uh, an indiscriminate giving to whatever kinds of ministries happen to come along without using any discernment and, and the way we, we manage our, uh, we self-absorb in our money and then we, we suck away a whole bunch of other uh, money in retirement so we can do as little as possible for as long as possible. You know, and then we, we blame that on other things, see? We, we blame our problems then uh, that uh, a lack of understanding and managing the things God's given us in His way and we blame other outside influences on uh, our problems, see? But Jesus says, listen, you may want to pay attention to this. This is not what you're used to hearing. You need to understand this because people are used to just blaming outside things for the problems. And even Jesus' disciples don't know what to do with this. And so they wait for a moment after he gets done saying this. And then in verse 17, it says, when they had left the crowd and they'd entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? And so he probably had a little higher expectation of, uh, uh, of his redeemed, but he expected the unredeemed to miss it, but he didn't, his disciples didn't understand it either. And so he addresses the eating with unwashed hands problem and the dedicating money to the temple problem. And he says, uh, do not, do, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? In other words, this is common knowledge. Don't you get this? 
because it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all food clean. So we have that parenthetical statement. So that every every food, in other words, just got exonerated. There's nothing that's going to take, you're going to take in, he says, it's going to cause you problems. And it's not going to defile you. And as you know, the word heart here is the word cardia. Now, they understood that heart as the physical property, the anatomical function, but it also denotes the center of the physical and spiritual life too, the center of the seed, of the soul, of the, uh, of the, soul, of the mind, uh, the thoughts, the passions, desires, appetites, affections, all of those things, purposes, endeavors, that's the center. And so what Jesus is saying here, in other words, things from the outside don't corrupt the real you. Specifically, you were not made unfit for holy things because you do not wash your hands. And then he explains then the broader application. The disciples get this broader application here in private. Verse 20, he says this, and he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, the fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, Deeds of coveting, mark that, right? Deeds of coveting, lusting after something that doesn't belong to you, wanting something that doesn't belong to you, uh, counting someone who has it as less because you don't have it or somebody else doesn't have it and they have it. That's all that coveting. Everything we looked at before, see, just the same old sinful behaviors. And wickedness as well as deceit and sensuality. And here, here's another one. Envy and slander and pride and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man, see. So where's the problem? The real problem that has application for everything in the broken world, because Jesus takes a big swath in right here, doesn't he? Fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, murder, pride, foolishness. See, all of that, see, the real problem is what? It's the heart. That's the real issue as it relates to food, and as it relates to money, and time, and experiences, and opportunities, see, and every situation. And we see the same thing recorded for us in Luke, in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, uh, a parallel passage. Uh, the good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth that which, forth what is good, and the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart, see. So food isn't the problem. The problem is what? The problem's the heart. See, you can blame it on food for why you do what you do and why you're, why you're, uh, uh, why you're disapproved for worship and all of that stuff and defiled. But no, that's not the problem. Money's not the problem. The problem is what? The problem is the heart. See, money is, you don't, you don't have a money issue. What you have is a heart issue. Uh, money isn't immoral. It just puts immorality on display, doesn't it? Uh, money doesn't corrupt. It just points out very clearly the corruption of the heart. You take an immoral person and you give them money and they'll be able to take that immorality to a higher level than before. And I think if you need an example of that, you just look to Hollywood or you look to professional sports. You take immorality and then you just pile a bunch of money on it and what do you have? You just have that immorality taken to a higher level than before. You take a corrupt person and you increase their money and they will take that corruption to a greater degree than before. And you don't have to look farther than Nancy Pelosi and some of the others that are in uh, in in, uh, in the White House and in different places. You have that same problem, see? Things don't corrupt a person. Just take that person whose heart is already wandering from the instruction of the Lord and give them things and you give them opportunity to focus on something besides God and his kingdom. See, that's the problem. The problem is the heart. See, If you remember, we looked at this last time, Haggai 2.8. The Lord's just reminding his people, he said, the silver's mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, remember what he said? You shall remember the Lord your God. 
For it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. So understand this, beloved. If the Lord is giving you the power to make wealth, and if everything belongs to him and he can give it to whoever he wants, then having it wouldn't automatically make you immoral, and money by itself wouldn't be immoral. See? And God just reminds everyone that he owns it all, and he's the one that gives the ability to prosper from what he has made. See? In other words, God establishes the circumstances in life that give the opportunities for the gaining of material possessions, and those things are not bad in and of themselves. God knows all about the distribution of wealth, and we're going to look at that more. And he knows that the resources he's made will be distributed to people, and so what he's made for man isn't immoral. And he's made men and women with certain abilities and, and minds and circumstances to create opportunities as he sees fit. And, and this is why he cautions his people in verse 17 of Deuteronomy 8. And he says, otherwise, so in other words, when you have all these things, remember, you're going to take a look at your heart here. See, otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. See, what's the problem? Is it the wealth? No, it's the heart, isn't it? And if it's a corrupt heart, if it's a heart that wanders from the Lord, or if it's a heart that's immoral, then just multiplying wealth just gives the ability to multiply those things more, see? And so the Lord warns his people. And and we can see the same principle, the same thing in the New Testament. We see the same uh, heart problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Do you remember this? Um, as he's dealing with a very haughty church, a very uh, dysfunctional church, a very distant church, and he's working through the issues that are causing the church problems. And this is where we got, you know, God's plan for a healthy church title, because as the church has these difficulties, we get to see how Paul addresses them. But here, this particular one, uh, you can see the haughty heart attitude, and Paul has to say this. He says, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You're already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. Indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. And Paul uses a little sarcasm to reveal the arrogant heart of some individuals in the Corinthian church. And what's the answer to the first question posed here? For who regards you as superior? Themselves. And what's the answer to the second question? What do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. Now, Paul doesn't say that, but that's the implication. And people on earth benefit only because the Lord allows it. And we can see that very clearly from Haggai and for Deuteronomy. Now, you remember, you may remember this. And this is, I think this is a, we're going to see this a little bit more later as it plays into to how God distributes wealth. But in Daniel chapter 4, verse 25, Daniel's warning to Nebuchadnezzar, one of my favorite passages out of the book of Daniel um, Daniel is cautioning Nebuchadnezzar, the arrogance and the pride that he has brought to his position. And he says, listen, you may be driven away from mankind, your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. In other words, he's going to lose his kingdom, he's going to act like a beast, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize, mark this, beloved, you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and catch this last part of the sentence. And bestows it on whomever he, what? Wishes. It goes right together with what we just read, doesn't it? God owns it all. He gives any part of it to whomever he wishes. And that is a very consistent, that is very consistent with what we uh, have seen so far. And so 
Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what to do to avoid the Lord's chastening. In verse 27, he says this. He says, therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. It's always how you answer a king, right? You don't want to offend him. May my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness. So here's the thing. Ask this question as we just kind of pause there for a second. Are Nebuchadnezzar's problems because wealth and power are immoral? No. God's given both of them to him. We just saw that just a second ago. The, the, the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he bestows that realm of whatever that is, uh, being part of the world and the realm of mankind and, and, and every all the processes there. God bestows that on whomever he wishes. See, So his problem is what? An arrogant and immoral and corrupt heart. And wealth and power are just ways that they have become what? Very apparent. So he says, therefore, O king, my advice, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. So what's he supposed to do? Break off with the whole arrogant thing and then take care of the poor. And that's very similar to what we saw last time in First Timothy chapter 6 last week. Remember, that was my advice to those with money in this world to be rich in good works and ready to share. Take care of the poor is something we're going to see over and over again. So it's not wrong to do that. And, and Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. You can do good to them anytime you want. And so very consistent all the way through the scriptures. We don't have any, any problems with it clashing here. He says, and from your iniquities by showing uh, mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging, a prolonging of your prosperity. So what was the problem? The problem was the heart. And the prosperity came from the Lord. And so Daniel is the messenger, and he's saying, listen, you need to, you need to change your attitude. You have this attitude that you've, you're the one who created all this, and you're the one who, uh, because of your might and all of that, you've done all of this, and this belongs to you, and, and somehow you're due, and then you're, you're very caustic to the poor, and you're showing a lot of unrighteousness going on. Daniel says, clean up your act. You know, your prosperity's come from the Lord, and you've used it badly. But here's the thing. This uh, character of arrogance and the love of material things, it's hard to rein in. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do it very well. And in verse 29 of Daniel, chapter 4, we see about 12 months later, after this conversation with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, 12 months later, he, and that's Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Verse 30, the king reflected and said, so in, as he's looking at all the things that are around him. He's on the roof of his house and he's looking at over the whole city skyline and it's by the Lord's admission, the greatest kingdom that's ever existed. And he looks on this kingdom and he says to himself, and this is his real thought coming from a corrupt heart, a prideful uh, arrogance inside. Is this not Babylon the great, which I catch this, I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Now what, beloved, what did the Lord say to his people was most important that they did not do when they inherited the wealth that he was going to give them when they came to the land? He says, you may say in your heart, don't do this. My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. And what did Nebuchadnezzar just do 12 months after Daniel's very clear admonition to knock off the whole arrogant attitude? He says it. And what happens? Well, the very thing that Daniel said was going to happen. Now, it seems very disconnected from us, right? Thousands of years ago. But maybe you say it this way. Okay. Wow, I've really provided a good living for my family. Or, 
We have really done well. We are way ahead of couples our age. Or, I've really provided well for my kids, and they have everything they need. What's the underlying factor there? The underlying factor is the assumption that because of your business acuity, your sharp mind, uh, your ability to put things together and, and see opportunities, somehow you and all the ability that you have, you've accumulated all of this and it's just very nice that you know, it's just affirmed that you have what it takes to make this happen. And instead of reflecting on God's sovereignty, see, and saying in the privacy of your home and your thoughts, thank you, Lord, for your gracious blessing on our home or your gracious blessing manifested in the ability to do some certain thing or know some certain thing. Or thank you, Lord, for always taking care of our needs. I don't know how you do it, but you always do that. And you give us even more than we had even hoped for. And that's all from your hand. See? Many don't do that, see. And so you fall into the exact same pattern that's been all the way through Scripture shown in a very negative light and you're in very bad company. Many don't do that. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't do it either, see. And so it didn't have really anything to do with the amount of wealth because his uh, amount of wealth is, was so vast that ours would perhaps be what got spent in a minute in his kingdom. But the attitude is the same, isn't it? And surely you can see this. And, and the Lord took all of that away so that Nebuchadnezzar would have the chance to reflect on Daniel's timely warning. And what was it? You recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And so when we go through that, I think we can see that money and possessions are neutral. They don't have any morality. No corrupting power on their own. See, The Lord is the one who bestows it. He certainly wouldn't give us something and all of a sudden that becomes sinful to have it doesn't make any sense. And so we can kind of reject what some of the culture is saying and shouting because we know it's just, it's just covetousness. It's just lust. It's a desire and envy to have something someone else has. And so when we see this idea that money possessions are neutral and they have no morality, no corrupting power on their own, that makes sense, right? Considering they're all gifts from his hand and he wouldn't condemn us for having any of them, whether they were great or small. Here's the deal then. How they are managed and how they are evaluated then gives insight into the morality of the individual. See, so it just kind of flips it around. Instead of those things being immoral, the way they're evaluated and the way that they are managed really show the morality of the individual. It is a barometer then for where the spiritual life is at that point. Because you don't have a lot of, you don't have to have a lot of either of either money or or possessions to have a corrupt view or a sinful view. See, you can have very little and have a wrong view of of money and possessions, and you can have a lot and have a very poor view, a bad view of money and possessions. See, now, what God gives is always good, right? I mean, we understand that very basic concept from. From uh, as we saw March seven, though our own hearts the problem. God gives good gifts. I think James tells us this. And so, if if money and possessions are not immoral, they're neutral. They don't have any corrupting power on its own. 
and we understand all things come from the Lord and that everything he gives is good. That's our next step. So look at James chapter 1, verse 14. And it talks about temptation, and, and you can apply this as the Holy Spirit allows you to. So each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. What's the real problem? We have trouble with what we have. What's the problem? The problem is our own lust, our own heart, coming from our own heart. We see that at a mark, right? Seven. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So we then act on these wrong ideas about money and possessions or whatever it is. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Because sin always always subtracts, and, and apart from being delivered by Christ, it's going to end up in death. Verse 16, it says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brother. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from where? Above. Do you see how we start shaping our heart attitude about whatever the Lord has given to us? Everything that has we have every good gift, everything that he's given is from above. You see how that begins to shape how you look at perhaps the life that you have? See, every single thing, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation and no shifting shadow. Every gift in our life, every application of grace, every blessing, see, they are all from God. But what I do with them acts as a barometer of my spiritual life. And, and as we get ready to close, as we think about these good gifts God has given, obviously, God obviously desires for people to use those gifts for good. That doesn't take a big jump, does it? I mean, we, we understand that's the case. Not just for the kingdom, and not just for missions and for outreach and support of the local church and helping those who have need. You know, God knows by his very nature, those are, those are things that should be given to and, and, and those are appropriate and that's certainly what the Macedonian believers were doing. But in order to even get there, see, we have to, you have to know that, you know, God, God obviously desires for people to use the gifts for good and he knows by his very nature that there are needs of food and clothing and home and some comforts in life. Those are not bad things, okay? God knows that you need them. And I want to read this passage just briefly and we're going to revisit it and look at it a little more in depth. Uh, but I want to remind you of the nature of God as it concerns these things because I think it's important as we think about if, if money's not immoral and things are not corrupt, but they just reveal corruption or they can be used for good and, and, you, and God can receive the things he's supposed to have. Um, if you look at Luke chapter 12, verse 23, you understand his disposition towards you. And we see this very clearly, those who are his, see this very clearly in Luke 12. And Jesus is talking, and then he says some things I hope are true, and I'm sure as he is talking to those who are listening, he knows whether they're true in the hearts of individuals who are listening. We don't, but here it is. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. So life is just not about material things. Verse 24, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom, no barn, no savings account, no portfolio, no retirement, nothing. Okay? And yet God feeds them, how much more valuable are you than the birds? And that's from least to greatest kind of a comparison. The birds are not valuable at all, and you are what? Very valuable, see? Valuable enough that Christ would come and sacrifice himself on the cross for you. That's how valuable you are. God's pinnacle of creation. He made the earth for men and women. So, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't have a storeroom or a barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Verse 25. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? In other words, as you think about the things that you have or what you think you need, and you worry about those things, how can you even fix any of that? You can't add a single hour to your lifespan if you, then you cannot do even a very little thing. And that's, that's what the Lord, that's how he evaluates. Another hour to your life. That's a very little thing for him. We can't do it at all. 
why do you worry about other matters? And I would say the hour more of life perhaps would be way more important than the things of this world. See, we can't change uh, the hour of our life. We can't change those other things. And yet we worry about those constantly. And that's because we've placed an inordinate value on them and we've shuffled everything around in our life so that we've gotten our, we've, we've put, placed ourselves in a position where we're not handling them right and now we're worrying about them and we're evaluating them completely incorrectly. He says, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. Now here's the rub. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? And remember I told you, we started last week, I said, you know, perhaps you've got a lot of worry concerning uh, your security. Perhaps these last month or so has really uh, put a big debit into your account and you are concerned about where you are and what your future will look like. And I told you that if, as you begin to understand these principles, that you will find that God already has a plan for your security. Here's one of them. How much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you'll eat and what you'll drink. And don't keep worrying about all of those things. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. See, God's disposition towards you isn't, well, you know, they, they can live in this certain way. I don't care about that. I don't care if they have the basic necessities of life. Not just that, the Lord has clothed the grass of the field, the lilies, and he's clothed the ravens, and he feeds them, and we're worth way more than those things. And we don't want to be like the nations who, because it becomes our number one factor to accumulate things, see. Your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. That's not against you having what you need. The last little phrase there, he's chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. That's what's in his mind. It's not against us appreciating life, enjoying what he has made. He has even bigger plans for your future, as a matter of fact. He made them for that purpose, which gives us more than a little insight into his nature. He just wants to make sure that you love him, not those things, see? And that you give him glory for what he has provided and that you take what God has given and use it for good and for his glory. So he says... I know you need these things and I'm going to provide them for you. Just seek my kingdom first and foremost. Let that be first in your mind. And when you're doing that, you'll be ready to do good and you're going to share like we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 6, right? And Jesus says much the same here in Luke 12. He says, sell your possessions and give to charity and make yourselves money belts that do not wear out. See, I'm going to give you these things. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to have what you need. And when you have that, uh, make sure that you give and, and, and make money belts uh, which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven. You're going to lay it up there, see? And where no thief comes, nor moth destroys, and no stock market crashes, and takes everything that you've saved and set your life for all the way up until now. See? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's always the thing, isn't it? 
How we evaluate it, what we do with it, reveals the true heart matter of the issue. The way you use and think about the things God's provided is a barometer of your spiritual health. So take what God has given and use it for good and for his glory. He knows what you need. See, This kind of helps to realign us. It sets the compass back to true north, doesn't it? And you'll have what you need here. And you'll be investing in a portfolio that can never depreciate in the future. See, And apparently... This is some of what the Macedonian believers understood. Because you're not going to deal with money and finances the way they did if you don't understand this. If you don't understand the Lord has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. If you don't understand that when you give things away, you're laying up an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief or moth can destroy it. And it indicated where their heart really was. See, Did the Lord need those sacrifices? Did he need the money? Did he need, in the Old Testament, the cattle and, and the, all the things that they gave? What did we read last week? No, he's not hungry. He doesn't need that. And all the resources are already his. What he needs is the heart, and the heart, he finds out if, if he has the heart by what we do with what he's provided. See, And the heart can be far from him, and you not have much, and the heart can be far from him, and you have a whole lot. And this is some of what the Macedonian believers understood, so that Paul could say, as he observed how they handled what they had, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability, beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in support of the saints. And beloved, I think you can see how we can get there as we begin to realign how we think about what God is providing. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, I thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. Very grateful today for uh, this chance to to minister your word even from a distance. It certainly is not the same. And Lord, we understand. We long for fellow. You understand. We long for fellowship. You've created us to have fellowship with one another. You've made us to long to be together. We desire very much to be a church body back together again, ministering to one another's needs uh, physically in person. But Lord, as we're apart from one another, I pray that our hearts will be given more to you that will understand more about how you supply everything, that you can take things away and it is your discretion to do it, that you can reduce what we have put away to nothing even if you wish, but that doesn't make us any less secure than we were when we had everything we thought secured us from any disaster. Because our security was never found in any of those things to begin with, and the fact that we looked there as our security only showed that our hearts were not in the wrong place or our hearts were in the wrong place. And Father, I pray that you'll begin to correct those attitudes. You know where we are. Uh, you know what we think about in private. You know how we use what we have. And Lord, I pray that uh, these statistics that we saw from PushPay, where 50% do nothing at all with ministry giving, nothing. And most only give about 2% of what they have. Now, Lord, we're not certainly not teaching 10% tithe as you gave uh, the Old Testament but we certainly know that there's a portion of what we have that doesn't belong to us at all, that you've given to us to lay up treasure in heaven with you. And we're going to see in, in these next two chapters that not only do you want us to lay it up, but you promised to give it back, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing, as a matter of fact. And so, Lord, I pray that we'll begin to evaluate uh, what we have. I think of the lady with two copper coins. As you watched what she did, you didn't condemn her. Oh, she's given everything I've given her to live on. 
And as I think about the wealthy businessman who built more barns, you didn't condemn him for having a lot. What you condemned him for is that he wasn't wealthy in the future kingdom, only in this one. Two copper coins was wealthy in the future kingdom. The wealthy businessman was wealthy in this one. Father, you take care of our needs. Help us to remember these passages that we just looked at. How marvelous it is to think about that you, at Luke 12, that you, you've already understood what we need. It's not a surprise to you that we have to have things to live, that we have to provide for our family. And you've already uh, designated to give us the kingdom. We're not worried about, we shouldn't be worried about those kinds of things. We're supposed to seek your kingdom and, and your righteousness and all these other things will be taken care of. And Father, I pray, again, that's just an alignment of the heart and help us to see that so clearly. Father, I pray that you'll bless us as we're apart. Help us to be given to your word. Help us be given to the Great Commission. Help us not to miss the opportunities to grow in the likeness of your Son. And help us not to miss the opportunities to grow in our confidence in giving your word out as you give us opportunity. And we pray for opportunity now. And we thank you today for the blessing of your word and for being together and for fellowship and for the church. As the church has left this building, Lord, help it to be planting seed that will reap eternal reward. I pray this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.